1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall go down, uh, shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put up my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand should not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me with good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. And you've declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. All right, so we are in chapter 24. We have been speeding along, and so I need to do a little bit of legwork uh, to catch us up to where we're at. The last couple of weeks, we've kind of um, jumped around, and I hope that you've been following along in our reading plan Um, in those little ESV scripture journals. They're very helpful. They'll ensure that by the time that you get here on Sunday, if you're caught up, you will be where we are that Sunday uh, morning. But last week, we saw that David is now on the run. Rich did a wonderful job uh, preaching 1 Samuel 22. Uh, For us, Saul is fully committed to hunting and killing David, and David has lost everything to this point. He's had to leave his 
home, we saw last week that he was all alone. And he has enemies all around him. The Philistines want to kill him. His own people want to kill him. David, in 1 Samuel 21, went to Gath. Okay, you'll see that. Um, if you actually go, if you have a Bible at the beginning, you can pull up your map yourself. But Gath, if you're looking at, at a map, Gath is on the left side of the map at this point. That is Philistine territory. So he goes to the Philistines and they realize that he's David and they say, hey, this might be the guy. And so what does David do in that moment to escape that situation? He starts to act crazy. It says that he started uh, making marks on doors of the gate. His spittle, I love that, his spittle ran down his beard uh, and they let him go. He just started to act uh, crazy. He goes from Gath to Adullam. Adullam is uh, where he was last week in the cave. It was just to the right of um, of Gath. And it's in the cave that he cries out to the Lord. I hope you had a, we had a wonderful discussion in our home group, um, just talking about how we are to talk with the Lord and how we are to pray to the Lord, uh, especially in hard circumstances. And it's in that place that God begins to comfort David in the cave of Adullam. Um, and he begins to strengthen his hand. And you see that in that cave, people started being drawn to David. In 1 Samuel 22, 2, it says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, They gathered to him, and he became commander over them. That when life fell apart for David, God provides for him. He gives him strength. He gives him confidence. And God begins to give David a community. And from the cave of Adullam, David takes 400 men, and they go to the wilderness of Maon. Um, If I had a map, it would be on the bottom of the map. So you can picture Gath, Adullam, and then down here is the wilderness of Maon. And in 1 Samuel 23... Uh, verse 24, um, it's in the wilderness of Maon that it seems like Saul is finally going to capture David. It says, now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jehoshimon. Uh, sorry, Jeshimon, said that wrong. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maom. Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. And then, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. That was a close call, right? Um, imagine being David at this point. You've literally traveled all over your country, running for your life. Saul's, Saul's closing in, and he's hurrying. David's hurrying to get away, and then all of a sudden, Saul stops pursuing you, right? And so David escapes, and then in verse 29, it says, David went up from there and lived in the stronghold of En Gedi. Now, En Gedi uh, some of you have probably been to En Gedi before. Um, it's just to the left, to the west of the Dead Sea. It was very rocky. Uh, it was very hard terrain. There are many believe, many that believe it was in En Gedi that David wrote Psalm 63. You know Psalm 63? It's one of my favorite psalms. That as he's on the run and he's sitting in these rocky caves, he writes in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints, uh, faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And God continues to forge 
David's heart. And now we can pick it up in 1 Samuel 24. One, it says, when Saul returned from following the Philistines. So it's been several months to this point. Uh, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. Okay, think about the insanity of this moment. Saul has chosen 3,000 hand-picked soldiers to march across their country to kill one guy. He takes the best of the best, the Rangers, the uh, SEAL team members, and he's laser focused on keeping his power by killing the one person who he thinks threatens him the most. And just like all of us, when we go on a long trip, Saul realizes that he needs a potty break because everybody poops. That's the name of a kid's book I saw one time, just saying you might own it. Um, I see lots of moms shaking their heads, but verse 3 He came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. In Hebrew, that word means to cover one's feet. So you can infer what's happening. Saul is due for a good potty. Uh, And the text says, check this out. David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now, trying to remove the familiarity from this story, right? If you grew up in church. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Of all the caves that Saul could go into to relieve himself, he goes into the one cave that David is in. I mean, what providence, right? God has set this up for David. This guy has been chasing David around for months, and he shows up right in front of him without his guards, completely exposed and vulnerable, literally with his pants down, y'all. And this is the moment, right? This has got to be the moment. This is the moment where, where David in Saul, where David gets his revenge. I mean, God has set this up. How could God want anything different? This was obviously set up by the sovereignty of God. I mean, that's what David's men think, right? Verse 4, and the men of David said to him, here's the day, David, which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy, Saul, into your hand, and you shall do to him, David, as shall seem good to you. The men around David say, look, Look, God set this up. He's right there. Imagine being in that cave with David as one of Saul's men. You're hiding. I mean, think about this. This is it's, it's the sanity of this moment. You're hiding for your life. I mean, these men are threatened to kill you. You can hear their footsteps all around you in these caves. And this one person walks into the cave, right? And you're watching and you're like, oh, be quiet, be quiet. And then you realize, that's Saul. He's coming to kill us. And what does Saul do? literally drops his pants. Are you kidding me? This is the moment. This is the moment. The text goes on and it says, the David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That word arose, uh, it communicates the idea of a, a decisive decision, that David made a decision in that moment. He grabs his knife and decides not to kill Saul, but just to cut off a piece of his before we move on to the text, let me say something. Convenient circumstances are not always a sign from God that you should participate in those circumstances. Does that make sense? Convenient circumstances are not always a sign that you should participate in those circumstances. How many of us have asked at some point, God, could you just show me a sign? You ever said that? I've said it. Uh, I wonder how many of us in here... Um, have, but you say, okay, God, show me a sign, and then you walk out, 
and you see seven doves fly out of the tree in front of you. And then as you follow them, you look up towards the sky and you see a cloud. It's in the shape of a cross. And then you look to your right and you see a squirrel. It's got two thumbs up. And you're like, man, you know, I've been seeing a lot of pictures of jet skis lately. This is God telling me I should buy a jet ski, right? Um, In this moment, it would be convenient for David to kill Saul, right? No longer would he have to run and hide in caves. Killing Saul would would make David's life so much easier. And it would seem, right, it would seem that God has laid before David the perfect opportunity. And when you look around at your circumstances, if you're honest, there are a lot of convenient actions that you could take that would probably make your life easier. We've all been in situations. We've all been in situations where we are tempted to justify our decisions by pointing to assumed sovereign circumstances. And that's a dangerous gain. Well, God chose to bless me with a bonus. So he's telling me that we should just buy a new car. Or better yet, I heard this one sometime from a friend of mine. Um, My marriage has just been awful. I'm unhappy. She's unhappy. You know, God provided me this girl at work, and we just have so much in common. It's so easy to talk to her. We, we, We get along so well, and so it's obvious that God has provided her to me so that I should just leave my wife and go with her. Well, he wouldn't want me to be unhappy, right? Assumed providence should never replace revealed obedience. There are moments in life where God will direct your life through specific circumstances. He absolutely will, but it's so, under, it's so important that we understand the difference between ordained circumstances and temptation Assumed providence should never replace revealed obedience. God has already revealed to each of us how we should follow him in this world. His word has revealed who he is and what it means to be a follower of Christ. It was tempting for David to look at these circumstances and go, you know, honestly, the end does justify the means. God has ordained that I'll be king, right? He has told me that. That is a promise. And he has placed Saul, the current king, right in front of me. Therefore, God wants me to kill him so that I can be king. What's the problem with that? God will never ask us to participate in disobedience in order to fulfill his will. He'll never ask us to participate in disobedience to fulfill his will. If David kills Saul in this moment, he would be disobeying God and inserting his own will in the place of God's. God has promised that David will be king. That's true. But God is going to establish David's kingship his way. To murder Saul in this moment would be to forsake God's revealed word. So what's the difference between ordained circumstances and temptation? Ordained circumstances will always result in the glory of God. Embracing temptation will always result in the rejecting of the glory of God. Of God. God will never command us to sin in order to fulfill his will. That's not how he works, that's how the enemy works. Satan will often put the idea in our minds that our sin is okay because God wants it, right? And he will even twist scripture to convince us that what we are doing is okay. That's what's happening with David's men here. David's men are, think about it, David's men are quoting scripture to him. 
They're quoting scripture him to convince him that sinning against God is okay. The scripture that David's men quote to him, it wasn't a reference to Saul. It was a reference to the Philistines. And so they twist the words of God for their benefit. I mean, this is what Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness, right? When Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan took Jesus to a high, uh, when Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan took Jesus to a high mountain and said, hey, Jesus, all this I'll give to you. Everything that you see, if you bow down and you worship me. Now, Jesus knows that there will be a day after his resurrection where he'll go to the ancient of days, the Father, and the Father will give him the dominions of all things, of every nation, right? But Satan says, this truth, I can give it to you right now. Think about how that works in our lives. God has promised that you will have joy, right? Satan says, here's how you can have it. He takes the truth, something that God wants us to have, and he twists it and said, here's a shortcut to how you can get what God has promised. Take this shortcut. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You can have it all right now. The result will be the same, Jesus. But all you got to do is worship me. Think about Abraham. Remember, God said to Abraham, Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And that's true, right? That was the words of God, revealed words of God. It was the plan of God. But as Abraham becomes impatient, God, I don't have a son. And him and Sarah get older, what thought enters Abraham's mind? Hey, God has promised me a child. Me and my wife are old. Therefore, I should sleep with my servant Hagar. This must be what God wants, right? We rationalize it. The ends justify the means because God has promised this. In other words, let me take matters into my own hands because in reality, I don't trust the Lord. So it's good for all of us to ask the question, where am I trying to take shortcuts to what God has promised? I'm trying to find joy in this place. I'm trying to find hope in this place. I'm I'm rationalizing these sins because you know what? At the end of the day, wouldn't God want me to be happy? Isn't this what he wants? What does his word say? What does his word say? Temptation will always lead to disobedience, but providence, the providence of God will always lead in our souls, giving glory to God. So David cuts off a piece of Saul's robe, and even in that, David shows regret, which I'm like, okay, what's the big deal, bro? And he says in verse 5, he tells us what the big deal is. He says, afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to the men, the Lord, check out, check it out, revealed word, right? The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David says, whether I like it or not, Saul is God's appointed king. And it's not for me that I should take matters into my own hands. Here's the thing that David understands that I pray that I would understand. God wants to be honored in the end product, right? At the end of our lives, at the end of all things, at the end of every circumstance, God wants to be honored in the end product. But he also wants to be honored in the process to that end product. That's what sanctification is. That all throughout your life, God is growing you. He's molding you. He's forming you to be like him. And the promise at the end of all things is a theological term called glorification. Okay, Glorification is the reality that in our resurrected bodies, in the new heaven and in the new earth, we will be complete. Temptation will be no more. There will be no more risk of falling into sin. But before glorification comes sanctification, the process of God making us holy. So think about it. The promise is that at the end of all things, 
God's work will be complete in us, right? But just because the promise is glorification does not excuse our apathy for sanctification. Does that make sense? That God has called us in this life to honor him and the process of him making us like him, holy and glorified. That's what Romans 6 says. Romans 6, uh, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we, check out this question. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? So in other words, should I just sin because I know that grace is offered to me at the end? It's not a big deal. God will forgive me later. And he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Into his death. And he says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk and the newness of life. Just because eternal life is promised does not mean that you are just free to live in disobedience. And y'all, it's not just a matter of do this because God says so. Jesus is better than that. He's far more satisfying, and his plan is far better than any promise that the enemy, that the flesh, can give us. You might say, but Colton, Saul's trying to kill him. <laughs> what do you, what's he supposed to do, Right? Just, just let Saul continue to try to kill him? Look, I've been there. Many of us have been there. Where you've been wronged by somebody so deeply. They wronged you. And so there's this temptation for us to say, now God wants me to bring his justice, right? Look, Saul is not the standard of David's obedience. The center of what David does is not dependent on what Saul does. But as you can see, he says, the Lord forbid this of me. The center of David's obedience is what God has asked of him. We don't look to the Sauls of the world to find our worth. We look to the King of Kings, to King Jesus, who laid on a cross and died for us. And we say, what your word says, I will do. Verse 7. David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the king, left the cave and went on his way. And afterwards, David arose and went out to the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bound with his faith to the earth and paid homage. I mean, think about the humility of David in this moment. Saul has been chasing him down, trying to kill him. And David bows to Saul, not because of who Saul is, but because of what the Lord has commanded of him. He says, Saul, you have been appointed king. And so David honors him as king until God removes him of king. Uh, go down to verse 13. I'm not going to read the whole thing because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, but verse 13, uh, David says to Saul, as the Proverbs of ancient say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. In other words, your sin does not justify my sin. We're not responsible for someone else's Sins, you're responsible for your own, for your own decisions. The ends never justify the means. And then verse 14, it says, After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? I love that. After a flea? That's David's way of saying, Saul, I'm no threat to you, bro. Um, and then he says in verse 15, May the Lord judge and give sentence between me and you. David does not sing his, seek his own justice in this moment, but he's content 
with the will of God? Are you content with the will of God? Or do you always have the temptation to take matters into your own hands? To say, you know what, God, I'm tired of waiting on you. I'll take care of this. I'll make sure they stop saying those things about me. I'll make sure that my name is protected. Or do you trust God? Reminds me of Romans 12, 17, where he says, Paul says, repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. David shows mercy to Saul. And honestly, this is a foreshadowing to the mercy that God will show with us that we have wronged God, every single one of us. We have rejected him, but God in his love does not give us judgment. He gives us grace. He gives us grace. Saul sees all this and he weeps. He realizes that David could have killed him, but he didn't. And he tells him, hey, I know that you're going to be king. And then in verse 22, it says, David swore this to Saul. It says, Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the strongholds. This is just a side note, but notice that David doesn't go back with Saul. It looks like Saul has repented, right? I mean, he cries. He acknowledges that David would be king one day. So it's worth pointing out, and I want to say this carefully, it's worth pointing out that just because someone says that they're sorry, even if they truly mean it, even if they cry, doesn't mean you always go back to normal. Now, I will say, normal is not an impossibility, but it's rarely immediate. Just because someone apologizes in tears doesn't mean that you can trust them in that moment. Repentance for the sinner should be immediate. Forgiveness is required by the believer. But repentance, or knowing that repentance, takes time for us. And so we should be patient. So David says, I'm not going back with you, bro. You're crazy. He goes back to the stronghold. He trusts in the Lord, not in the words of Saul. And it's interesting, there's one more story I want to tell you about in chapter 25, um, because it's insane, honestly. Um, Go down to chapter 25. Uh, In chapter 25, uh, we'll start in verse 9, but we meet a man named Nabal, okay? This guy is wealthy and powerful. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He's got grain. He's got wine. He's got everything. And David, while he was in the wilderness, protected his shepherds, from raiders. And so David sends 10 men and says, hey, I would like your help. We've been protecting your shepherds for free without asking anything of you, but now we have a request. And in verse 9, we get Nabal's response to that request from David. 25.9, when David's young men came, they said all this, Nabal, uh, in the name of David. And they said, and then they waited, waited, and Nabal answered, David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told all this. And David said to his men, every man strapped on his sword. Every man of of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 men remained with the baggage. So Hebrew literature will often communicate something by the repeating of words. And you see here a perfect example of that. Uh, Nabal says, my bread and my water and my meat. And he rejects David's request. He's not willing to share his power. And David hears that and he's, he absolutely loses his mind. He loses it. 
He says to his man, every man strap on his sword and every man strapped on his sword and David strapped on his sword. David's absolutely ticked. Uh, It says in verse 21, look at verse 21. David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he's returned me evil for good. So he says in verse 22, God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now, it's interesting, as most of you know, uh, I'm a fan of the ESV. Love the ESV. Um, And that word male here in the ESV in verse 22 is technically right, okay? But in this case, the King James actually gives us a more accurate picture of what David is saying. So here's verse 22 in the King James Version. It says, so and more also, do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave, and this is what David is saying, if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light, any that pisseth against the wall. I'm not kidding. That's what the Bible says, okay? Um, If you missed it, David basically just said, hey, I'm going to kill any man who pees on the wall. That's what he says. Why does he say that? Because every dude likes to pee on the wall. It's it's not much more satisfying. Um, But why does it translate it? that way. ESV says male, that's technically right, because back then, they all probably peed on the wall. Um, But why why this moment? I think the Bible's showing us that David is in danger of losing his mind. He's in danger of, of going mad. He's in danger of looking like Saul. Remember a couple chapters ago, Saul in his insecurity wiped out a whole group of priests because they helped David? And now David gets insulted by Nabal and he says, I'm going to kill every single one of them. So the question is, how does David in this moment keep from being like Saul? How does God keep David from being like Saul? It's interesting. Nabal is married to a woman named Abigail. Okay, A servant runs up to Abigail and says, hey, you should probably know um, that David has reached out to our master, your husband. And the text says that Nabal railed at David and the servant tells her, David's men have been very good to us, okay? They have kept us safe, safe, and now, though, essentially, she says, David's pretty ticked, and he's going to come wipe us all out. And the servant finishes by basically saying, look, Abigail, you know how your husband gets, which I'm sure you've said that plenty of times. And so Abigail gets some food, she gets some wine, and she sends it all out to David, and then she comes after Um, all the food and wine. And as David is riding toward them to destroy their town, Abigail stands between David and her people. We'll pick it up in verse 28. And here's what she says. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you you as long as you live. What's she doing in this moment? She's reminding David of who God's called him to be. Verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. This is an amazing verse, y'all. A bundle was a pouch that shepherds would carry around to count sheep. Okay, Um, so this bundle is a little pouch that had a bunch of rocks in it, and you would use these rocks to keep track of all your sheep. So you'd say, all right, well, there's Steve, there's Carl, 
there's Joe, there's Bobby, right? And you count these little rocks and that would help you keep track uh, of your sheep. It communicates the idea that our shepherd does not lose track of us. And so she reminds David, hey, remember, David, you are in the bundle of the care of the Lord. He's keeping track of you. He's keeping counts. The Lord, David, is taking care of you. David, this isn't who God has called you to be. David, remember, the Lord watches over you as your shepherd. And then she says, as for your enemies, he shall sling them out as from the hollow of a sling. Now, why does she use that language? Because everyone in Israel would have known at this point what happened against Goliath, who he had no chance again. He took the humble weapon of a shepherd, and the Lord gave him victory. She's reminding him, hey, David, the Lord's given you victory over Goliath. He will give you victory over Saul. So don't lose your way, David, with someone like Nabal, whose name literally means fool. She's telling him, don't lose your mind over this fool. And so she finishes by telling him in verse 30, and when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause are for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. She essentially says, hey, trust in the plan of God. David, when you become king, you don't want the blood of Nabal on your conscience. Trust God to work his will, his way. Don't try to take this situation into your own hands. So how does David not become Saul? Because in this moment, in this moment, we're about to get to some places where David does not follow this advice. In this moment, he listens to the one who points him back to the words of God. You've got Jonathan in chapter 23, who strengthens his hand in God. And here you have Abigail, who reminds him what the Lord has said. What makes David not like Saul in this moment is he has the humility to listen when others remind him what God has said. David has impulses and temptations just like Saul. But David shows humility when he's confronted here. And here's the thing. Just like us, David does not know the details of the plan of God. He does not know how exactly everything is going to play out, but he does have a promise from God that he will be king. And so just like us, you may not know the mystery of the providence of God, the details of what's going to happen in your life, but you do know the promises of God, right? You don't know the details, but you know that he has a plan and you know his promises. I'm going to skip down uh, for time's sake, and I'm just going to remind you, Oh, this is cool. One more thing. <laughs> um, in verse 39, uh, it's, it says, um, so Abigail goes back and she tells uh, her husband is drunk out of his mind. And so she's like, I'll tell him what happened with David in the morning. And then he wakes up and she begins to tell him, uh, hey, just so you know, by the way, David was coming here to kill us. Uh, and Nabal like gets terrified and he has like a heart attack. The text says that his heart became stone. And we're meant to remember verse 39 when his wife told him, told him things and he became a stone. And we're meant to remember uh, verse 29, and the lives of your enemies, enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. What comes out from a sling? A stone. Isn't that incredible? All right, sorry. Um, now let me remind you two very important truths. Two things to walk away with. One, God in his providence has a plan for your life. God in his providence has a plan for your life. Do you believe that? 
Thank you, Pam uh, and Katie. Um, yes, he has a plan. I mean, Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I've got a lot more of these, but I, I can't go through them all. Um, in any and every circumstance, God is present in your life to accomplish his purposes. Now, you might say, well, Colton, what about when I lost my job? What about my miscarriage? What about my friend who betrayed me? And listen, I get it. I'm not naive. If you know my story, you know all the stuff that we've been through, that I've been through. Um, there, there's an old quote, an old illustration, uh, that for the life of me, I could not figure out who said it this week. But the idea was, if you put your face up to a stained glass window, your, your nose is three inches from it, are you going to think that picture's beautiful? It's going to look like chaos. It's going to look like a mess. But if you take a step back from that stained glass window, you're going to say, that's beautiful. That's gorgeous. I can see how the little pieces of glass, they come together and they make something beautiful. How many of us in our lives, we're looking at the circumstances around us and our eyes are three inches from that stained glass and we go, why would God do this? This doesn't make any sense. Why would a good loving God allow this? God, I don't understand what's happening here. Will you just show me a sign? The word of God is God moving our feet backwards to say, look at the picture. You don't know the details of his plan in your life, but you do know the promises that he's given you and what his word tells you about himself, about a Christ who came and died for you and rose from the grave. And now the joy that comes in following him, the word of God is him moving our feet back and saying, look at who I am. Trust me, not the details of what's going to happen in your life. So first, you know the purpose of God, or, or you know that God has a plan. You don't know the details. And so the second thing is, is that you know the promises of God. You know, I think about Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He has declared that he will complete his work that he's began in us. He's declared that uh, he is with us in suffering. He's declared that our suffering is temporary. And so if there's any practical thing I could give you today, honestly, it would be know your Bible. <laughs> know the word. Imagine being in a moment like David and not knowing the words of his God. He would not have known that the Lord forbid him from doing that. Know God's word. Study it. Memorize it. Cling to it with your soul. So that when that moment comes, you say, no, 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 this isn't God-ordained circumstances. This is temptation. So I reject it, and I run to my Lord. We're about to sing a song called This We Know. It says, this we know, we will see the enemy run. This we know, we will see the victory come. We hold on to every promise you have ever made. Jesus, you are unfailing. So my prayer is that as you sing that you would, one, look back and have a moment of grief, a moment of repentance, but that God would move you from that place into joy because he has loved you, he has sought you, and he's with you now. And he does have a plan.